Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And this is a Trexperts special edition. Uh, we're going to um, encore a presentation of a very special episode about the late, great Doug Trumbull, who passed away this week. Uh, Doug Trumbull, a legend, not just to sci-fi fans, but anybody who loves cinema, who loves movies, who loves... Uh, just um, technology. I mean, this 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 was a very special man, and we were lucky enough to have Darren sit down with him a couple of years ago at the. Yeah, um, he was back from uh, 2019 at the uh, at the Las Vegas uh, Trek convention, and, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was really uh, an amazing uh, interview. And honestly, unfortunately, we didn't record the uh, amazing dinner that I had with him. Uh, which was another four hours of uh, talking about stuff. Um, but uh, I, I've, I was lucky to uh, have known uh, Doug Trumbull for, uh, you know, since uh, 1999, almost. Um, and uh, he has always been a, uh, uh, an idol of mine. Uh, on all these uh, movies that I love, there was his name. And he was a key creative person involved in all of these movies from 2001 to Silent Running to uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind to Blade Runner and, of course, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, he was uh, truly a visionary and someone that people would count on to help uh, realize their visions. And he not only was a leader in the technical area of movie making, but uh, also in the storytelling and the ways that you convey to an audience the experience of watching a movie. And uh, he always tried to uh, push the envelope of what was possible and uh, to increase the uh, connection to an audience to a particular film. I always felt uh, awful uh, I remember in Starlog reading about this new movie that Doug Trumbull was directing, Brainstorm, yeah. with this new technology of show scan that he had pioneered and thinking, this sounds phenomenal and how it changed aspect ratios when you went into the brainstorm and just sounded like a really remarkable, groundbreaking movie. And of course, anyone who is familiar with that uh, era of filmmaking, it was during the production of that film that Natalie Wood, who had shot a bunch of the movie, uh, you know, died under uh, horrible circumstances um, and uh, in the middle of making that movie. And, and so it was up to the Bond company, you know, would they reshoot with another actress? What would they do? And kind of forced him to complete the movie in a way that was not the way he intended. And I always feel like that was a real missed opportunity. You know, that could have been a, a huge breakthrough for him. Yeah. And there was so much potential and he had such a vision for it that was compromised due to this tragic situation. Um, because when you think this was not just a via a visual effects uh, 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 artist, this was a, a filmmaker. Uh, his work with Kubrick on 2001, um, his ability to visualize a world along with Ridley Scott on Blade Runner, what he brought to um, Star Trek The Motion Picture, which just truly took us where we'd never gone before. Uh, it's just remarkable. And what he pulled off in that limited amount of time that he had on uh, Star Trek is nothing short of a miracle. Ashley, when you, <coughs> sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say that Robert Wise credited him uh, for saving the film, basically. 
Yeah, well, just the, and finishing it. Just him telling him to throw out the memory wall scene alone and reshoot it. Uh, which, which you will hear that we'll discuss uh, during the interview. So, um, Ashley, when you think of uh, Doug Trumbull, what, uh, what comes to mind for you? First of all, I, what comes to mind is turning on my microphone. Um, honestly, uh, Blade Runner. Actually, you know what? Yes, but Silent Running, man. Like, you know, it's, it's, and it's something that we don't, it's a movie that, that, that people kind of forget exists. Right. But it's awesome. Not Joan Baez. Not Joan Baez. Well, she's, or, yeah, she's, oh God. Oh God. Um, and if you haven't seen it, by the way, Silent Running is like, it's a really weird sort of hippie uh, science fiction movie. It's, yeah, exactly. It's like, and there's nothing quite like it. Um, but it looks great, uh, and it is totally worth your valuable time. And if you really, you know, want to go out and see what, like, what Doug Trumbull really can, what he contributed to the art, you know, it's like there are definitely the gimmies, but like, but that's one to go and find and to watch and to go, oh wow, number seventy-seven on our top one hundred and one greatest sci-fi movies of all time. Yeah, and also, I if you're a fan of the Agro ships from Battlestar Galactica. You're gonna love the Valley Forge. <laughs> totally. They're a little too aggro for me. <laughs> oh God. But um, you know, even till you know the very end, he was trying to push the boundaries of uh, a film. And this was not somebody who believed that movies should be watched on a phone or an iPad. He was somebody that um was trying to pioneer new methods of exhibition. Well, he was and, always a champion of what he called immersive viewing, which was actually taking the audience and making them feel like they were our participant in the film. Uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether it was uh, the, uh, the Stargate sequence in 2001 or the brainstorm effect in brainstorm to put, you know, thoughts cool. in people's minds. Um, to uh, the Spock spacewalk in Star Trek, the motion picture. These are all sort of experiential sections of films that he really enjoyed uh, yeah. making happen. And I think that's, you know, as much as there have been some groundbreaking advances in CGI, I don't think that um, the, the, the optical world of miniatures that he lived in will ever be topped. What he did in 2001 at Blade Runner and Star Trek, the motion picture and close encounters. Uh, I mean, it's not about the technology. It's about the artists using the technology. Yeah. And that's the difference. He, he was he was extraordinary. And he also was somebody who was a mentor to so many and inspiration to so many people in that field. Um, you know, obviously, he was a tremendous supporter of your work on the director's edition of uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. And, you know, there are lots of people out there who worked for him that uh, would have called him an SOB. And that sometimes happens when you, uh, when you hold You're up a, a standard of uh, quality uh, that uh, is difficult to reach. You know, it's, uh, it just happens. And that's the way uh, people are. But uh, Trumbull was a visionary and uh, he was a pioneer. And I always said that you can tell the pioneers uh, from everybody else, because they're the ones with the arrows in their back. 
<laughs> well, the, the, film, yeah. the films speak for themselves. And I'm very happy uh, to tell you that the 430 movie will be coming back uh, shortly. And um, our first episode will be a tribute to Doug Trumbull. <laughs> so I hope you'll join us for uh, general future week. No, for uh, a Trumbull week on Doug Trumbull week on the um, on the 430 movie. Yes, we're going to be back. And unfortunately, it's under sad circumstances. We ushered in last season with the passing of the great Dick Donner. And unfortunately, this year we'll be ushering it in with um, the passing of the great Doug Trumbull. But uh, <laughs> we will hoist a glass of Tranya in his memory. And um, we'll in see meantime, you. Enjoy this little talk with Doug Trumbull from 2019. This is Darren Docterman, and I am an inglorious Trexpert. Yes, just one this week, because Mark Altman is off tending his show, so he can't be here. But I am, and I have uh, gone a little crazy this week and next week uh, with what I call the Away Mission. I'm going to be talking with some lovely guests. So... Why don't you uh, join me for this episode where I talk with a, a very revered persona in the uh, history of certainly Star Trek and also in general, in science fiction in general. So sit back and listen. I have to warn you, though, the audio quality is not uh, up to our usual standards here on the Inglorious Trexperts because it was a... Uh, it was sort of a thrown-together situation, so I set up a couple microphones. And unfortunately, halfway through this first interview, I lost one of the mics, the mic with my voice on it. So halfway through, you're going to hear me off in the distance asking questions and talking with the guest. So without further ado, I'm going to bring you on our away mission and visit with our special guest. This is Darren Doctorman with a special edition of... Inglorious Trexperts, it's an away mission in beautiful, hot Las Vegas, Nevada. We're here for the 2019 Creation Star Trek convention. And I'm here talking with an icon in my, in my mind. <laughs> I, he, he probably doesn't like to be called that, but he is. The first anyone heard of him was he worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey and went on to direct uh, Silent Running. And he worked with uh, Robert Wise for the first time on the Andromeda Strain, and you know, Close Encounters, and uh, Blade Runner, and uh, of course, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, uh, which is celebrating its 40th year this December. Welcome, Douglas Trumbull. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you here. It's great I'm to so... great to yak with you. <laughs> We've talked about a lot of stuff in the past, and I am most fascinated by your journey in this industry and this uh and this life mm -hmm. um because you started out as a, a voracious reader and uh uh you enjoyed science fiction among other things yeah. and and you followed that bliss of you know through drawing and being creative and things like that and you were 
almost fearless, certainly in the in the beginning, when you were starting out. Yeah. And, you know, a lot now as well. Uh, but I love the story of uh, when you were working uh, at the company that was doing the, uh, the films for, was it the uh, exposition? Yeah, this was graphic films. Graphic yeah, films. Right. And uh, Con Patterson uh, was working there. And he was, uh, at the time, hired by uh, Kubrick. Um, uh, and the, the whole company was. The whole company was, yes. And uh, you wanted to get on that picture. And this was, uh, uh, you, you were you know, trying to find a way to get in. And you asked... You, you tell well, the story. Well, I'll tell the story. It's a little, it's a little I'll, re, I'll refine the story a little bit. Please. Um, I was working at Graphic Films because I had my portfolio as a young artist, mm -hmm. and I really admired all the Disney animators and background painters and sure. Ivan Earl and people yeah. who did amazing work for Disney, and uh, my portfolio was filled with spacecraft and alien planets right? Uh, because I loved science fiction, so that was driving me away from normal... Right. Life drawing and right. you know watercolors of sure. flowers and stuff, so um, I went looking for work in in L.A. I thought I, I thought the the entry point would be animation, right. so I went to animation studios, and I hit a couple of them first. And they looked at my portfolio and said, "You're in the wrong place. <laughs> we don't do this." Right. But we do know a place over the across town that does. Right. So I was referred over to Graphic Films, and I went over there and kind of cold called my way in the door and. Um, that was where I met Con Pedersen right. and uh, Ben Jackson, who was working with Con, and uh, immediately got a job to start doing what was really photorealistic illustration of spacecraft and right. satellites and stuff for NASA movies. Because a lot of that wasn't being done at the time. No, this was kind of an unusual little specialty studio yeah. doing, you know, kind of almost simulation type photography. Right. And... Uh, so we did some films, and one of the f most fun films was this film, To the Moon and Beyond, right. for the New York World's Fair. And I worked on all the illustrations and artwork for the, t for the t To the Moon and Beyond, which was an adventure into space. Mm -hmm. And it was, an, it was like Powers of Ten. Right. It was like everything from the microverse to the macroverse in 15 minutes. Scale changes, and it was all shot with fisheye lenses and projected into a dome screen mm -hmm. like a planetarium. Mm -hmm. So we called it the Dome Show. Right. And... Uh, that led to Stanley Kubrick and Arthur Clarke seeing that movie because they were in New York. Right. They were thinking about 2001. They immediately called Graphic Films and said, well, could you help us solve some heady problems with this movie? And Graphic said yes. It was run by Les Novros. Right. And Con Pedersen worked for, and I both worked for Les. And uh, so we were working on this contract with Kubrick to do pre-production design. And a lot of that stuff is still alive today. And it's at the Museum of Moving Image in New York. Right. And I'm going to go down there next month and look at the archive. of Because everything that was a graphic films ended up at the Museum of Moving Images. And uh, they're going to do an exhibit on 2001 next year. Anyhow, that got me the job. Yeah. And then Kubrick decided to, to make the movie in England and not right. make the movie in the States. And he felt that, oh, it's just going to be too far. I mean, because there's no faxes or photocopies or anything. And it all had to be airmail. Right. And uh, he said, well, airmail from London to L.A. is going to be a real drag. It's going to take too long to turn it around. So the creative process will be 
slowed down. Right. He said, well, so he terminated the contract. I got laid off. There was no other work in the pipeline at Graphic. And I'm saying, whoa, I was just, you know, working on something that was really yeah. exciting. And now the rug and, is And now it's, it's pulled. pulled and and I, I want to... So I don't know where my precocious side developed. And it probably was because I was kind of a... I was t a toughening up as a street kid. Right. My father, my, my father was... I was living with my father, but he was at work all the time. My mother right. died when I was seven. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of an abandoned kid. Yeah. And I think part of that led to a kind of a toughness. And uh, assertiveness to try to not get in too much trouble, and um, so I called Khan. I said, "Khan, you know, I want to call Kubrick." He said, "Really?" <laughs> I, said, yeah. I said, "Yeah." So um, he told me how to find Kubrick's phone number, right. which I did, and I cold called Stanley Kubrick because he was he was still under he uh, was under contract. Under contract he was under and he couldn't tell you right. He was under directly. a non disclosure agreement. He right. couldn't tell me by contract, right. but he did. He was you know yeah. he's a nice guy, and. Uh, it was hard for him because he wanted to work on it too. Sure. But he was able to finally get out of his contract by some means and, and joined me in England right. a few months later and really became an important part of how we got the movie done. Yeah. Anyhow, there I was working for Kubrick and uh, starting out my little movie career, working for this master filmmaker. And uh, Well, you, you called Kubrick and said, yeah. you know, you were working at Graphics Films. Yeah, I've been working you on your movie. To, you, you wanted to join him. Yeah. And so he must have called Khan. There sure. was no other way. Could I, but I don't know this for sure. I've never talked to Khan about it. But right. someone must have said, okay, it'll work. So right. Kubrick said, come on over. I'll send you a couple of plane tickets for yeah. you and your wife. And uh, so I had to settle all my affairs in L.A. I'd sure. already started another company and crazily doing simulated Mexican furniture was one of my sidelines in my garage. <laughs> and uh, I was selling these coffee tables to a place called Pancho's Via. Wow. <laughs> so I had to rewind that all down, sell that company to a friend of mine, and um, clear everything out so I could just fly. So you're saying it. somewhere in L.A. there are a couple coffee tables that are Trumbull. They're at, yeah, they're, yeah, quite a few. And, That's awesome. Yeah, and, and dinner tables and stuff. I was, I don't know, I was kind of a woodworker. That's cool. Passionate. I've never heard that before. That's no, very, cool. very, very few people know that story. <laughs> Anyhow, it's not something I publicize a lot. Anyway, I, I got free and I went to Eng right. England. And uh, started working on the movie. I'm making a long story short. <laughs> and I was a young animator from Graphic Films. Yeah. So my first task with Kubrick was to try to start doing house readouts, right. which are all animated. Right. How to make fake computer graphics. Mm -hmm. Well, that was unusual. <laughs> yeah. And so that was the beginning of my career and my training under the mentorship of Stanley Kubrick. Right. So in a two and a half year period, it was supposed to be nine months, but it ended to be two and a half years. Uh, I learned a lot, I'll bet. and I became important to him because that was my training ground, kind of discovering myself sure. and discovering that uh, engineering and art can be woven together right. to do visual effects. Your dad was an engineer. My father was an engineer. My mother was a commercial artist. Oh, there you go. So I had this blood, yeah. and it just came completely naturally to me. I don't know why, but it did. And so it was like rolling off a log. Right. And uh, so I just kept figuring out ways to, to solve problems for Kubrick. Right. What was one of the hardest things that he asked you to solve? Well, I think probably the hardest and most fun things, because they were all different. They were all different hardnesses, you know, sure. because each one was harder than the next. And each it was thing a was series, different. Yeah. It was a series of stepping stones. 
you know, because he, he would, this, I was doing the animation and doing house readouts. That was, we kind of got that done. And then a model came in from an outside model vendor, which was a fiberglass moon bus. Right. And it just looked like a looked loaf like of a bread. Toy. Looked yeah. like a toy. Didn't yeah. look any good. And, um, and everybody's looking at it and said, well, what do we do now? And I said, well, I think that what I know how to do, which is airbrushing, right. so we could detail the outside of this moon bus and really make it look... Give it some life. Give it some yeah. life and make it look aged and make it look paneled with a lot of you know, subtle material shifts and stuff. So he said, yeah, go ahead and do it. So I, I was in, in my office and I just got my airbrush out and right. painted the moon bus and made these little articulated rubber pads so that it could compress when it landed and stuff like that. And so... Kubrick really liked that. Mm -hmm. So next stepping stone, Kubrick says, okay, you shoot it. Right. And what do you mean I'm going to shoot it? <laughs> no, I'll give you a 65 camera. You're going to go over on the stage and shoot the landing of the moon bus. You built it. Now you shoot it. Stepping stone two. Yeah. And so I got involved in the lighting of it and how to right. make this landing pad and how to do these jets of uh, nitrogen gas to stir up the sure. the dust and everything. And so, so one thing led to another. Right. And... Uh, so I started being involved in the in a lot of the miniature building and the, the miniature styling, right. and the whole idea of uh, you know what is now called kit bashing, sure, which was just a you know steal parts off of German army model kits, right, um, and put them on a spacecraft to make it look real because it just looks real. Yeah, it's just that extra natural layer of detail that would naturally layer. be there. You needed yeah. layers of detail, so that was part of the style that we led to on the movie, and. Uh, the big challenge you were asking about was the Stargate. Sure. What was that? And that was, I think, a, an important and pivotal thing that I, I kind of went through and thought about a lot and yeah. figured out how to do, which was it represented, in the movie, it represented the transition from normal reality as we know it, normal time and space as we know it, right. to another dimension. Right in time and space. So it's time and space and dimension and speed and all kinds of things and what's that? Well, right. who knows? And so I remembered a lot of stuff that uh, one of the guys, uh, John Whitney, mm -hmm. had done for To the Moon and Beyond, right. which was kind of abstract artwork, you know, moray patterns, sure. backlit, and a camera with a zoom lens and the ability to move patterns while the shutter remained open right. for several seconds. Right. And uh, that was a bit of engineering too. Two-dimensional streaking. Two-dimensional right. streak photography, or or blur photography, right. controlled blurs. So I thought, well, maybe we can make it three-dimensional by moving the camera toward it. You know, a la, you know, what I'd learned as a kid. You know, like a multiplane camera from that Disney had used right. for Pinocchio and right. stuff like that. I said, well, let's let's try that. So I tried that and it worked. And I, I did a little uh, Polaroid photograph of that mm -hmm. on the animation stand and showed it to Kubrick and said, I think. This could be the way to do this. And so he got it immediately because right. Kubrick was a master photographer in sure. his own right. Sure. He said, okay, I understand this completely. What do you need? I said, well, I need to build this giant machine. It's as big as this hotel room. Yeah. And the fact that at that moment in time, I could get a green light to, do, to go into town and buy whatever gear or motor or thing I needed to do it under the auspices of this movie was just awesome. It was complete research and development. Right. And you're going into the unknown. Well, today, nobody gets to go into the yeah. unknown. Yeah. You know, it's all cookie packing. It's all computer graphics. Visual effects for movies have, have become commoditized. Yeah, it's a factory. And, and it's a factory. And 
it's not based on any individual's talent anymore. It's right. based on the best tax incentive and the best deal and the lowest bid. And that's one of the reasons I just said, i got to get out of this industry because it's not artful anymore. Yeah. So I don't want to dwell on that too much, but yeah. you, you know it well. I do. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that, that that time and place never happened before and never happened again, basically, of, of you know, that, that group of people getting together. It's, come, it's happened a couple of other times for me. I've been very fortunate. Um, it happened a little bit on Silent Running. Mm. Silent Running was a very risky little movie to make. To say, That's oh, right. we can do something that looks really cool, and we could do it for only a million dollars. This was Universal's this experiment. Was, this was Universal's yeah. experiment, which I had hands off. I could do anything I wanted. Right. And all I had to do was deliver on time and on budget, which we did. And, and Silent Running is filled with unusual approaches to how to do stuff. Sure. From projection and uh, animation and stuff. So... That happened, and then when we did Close Encounters, this I'm talking about me and Richard Yurisich, my, yeah, my partner, sure. longtime partner. Um, Close Encounters was very experimental, because, well, who knows what a UFO is supposed to look right. like? You know, we started out thinking, oh, it's a fiberglass shape, you know. Right. And that turned out not to the work. The standard answer to the Yeah, none, of, none yeah. of the classic stuff worked. None of the B-movie stuff worked. Right. And then it turned into this whole experiment in lens flares and lights and motion control and smoke right. and beams of light to create uh, those kind of beam light effects. And then the whole magical glow of the mothership was all designed around smoke because we were learning about smoke. Right. And that was a big development project too. We were going into uncharted territory. We developed the first motion control system that could actually record right. what the camera on on set, on set yes. in mobile alabama we recorded what the camera was doing and then played that back in our studio in la matched right. it and fitted it together on the optical printer so there have been times where we've been able to do some experiments that's that's what my stock and trade is is that somebody for whatever reason will say they trust me to undertake going into the unknown right. and when I saw the transition that the, the effects business went through, you know, right around the demise of Apogee, which was John Dykstra's company, right. and my company, which I sold to Richard Endland, it became Boss Film, right. and then they closed. Yeah. They were driven bankrupt by the difficulty of the transition to computer graphics. Right. It just about killed almost everybody. Because suddenly... And, and the producers trying to squeeze every last yeah. nickel out. Yeah, it was really tough. Yeah. And so it was a difficult period to go through in those years of uh, really starting a new art form. And there were, I wanted to mention that I was thinking about today, is that there were visionary experiments in computer graphics that happened very early, and one of them was Star Trek The Motion Picture. Because I was thinking about Robert Abel's thing, because yeah. you know, Bob Abel's company was trying to open up some uncharted territory yeah. using... Um, Evans and Sutherland uh, computer graphics and uh, computer stuff that wasn't much more sophisticated than wireframe. Right. So uh, for, vector for graphics. Pre-visualization. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it was ultimately a a mistaken assumption mm -hmm. that you could use that and actually get something that would work. Right. Because vector vector graphics and wireframe can't tell you anything about scale or speed or right. anything. Right. You don't learn a damn thing with it. And they went down, I think, a mistaken path and failed. Yeah. Nothing worked. Nothing looked good. They didn't get anything completed. Right. And that's when I got sucked into the vortex of 
Paramount Pictures and, and Star right. Trek the motion picture and uh, had to kind of save the day yeah. and, and fix things yeah. that had been done in a mistaken way. So well, that, that's, that's, that was our job. That's such a fascinating story about that whole... I mean, the, the movie was a train wreck from the beginning. Yeah, but not that it was misguided. It was not just, at all. Yeah. It through, was, through no fault of the people working on it. Yeah. It was, you know, first day, it was uh, over budget and behind schedule because they took all of the development years for all the other Star Trek projects and plopped it on the budget. Yeah. And, you know, only someone like Robert Wise, who was level-headed and concentrated and able to deflect that pressure that he was feeling yeah. and not transfer it to the crew. That's really an important thing that the director must always do. Absolutely. That's what Kubrick did for us. Yeah. He was under tremendous pressure too. Yeah. But none of us on the crew felt it. Right, right. He just said, just get it done when you can get it yeah. done. You know, Let's the crew right. be free yeah. enough yeah. to be creative yeah. and not be under the gun all yeah. the time. Right. Yeah. I think that's... That's a trait that is really lacking these days. Yeah, really lacking. Yeah. So you under you know the story of what happened when Paramount was terrified that the movie wasn't going to get delivered on time. Right. And that Paramount had taken advanced bookings for the film yeah. from many many theaters, yeah. theater owners. Called it was called blind bidding. Right. Theaters would pay in advance for the right to show the movie. Right. Well, the movie wasn't going to show up, so the theaters all banded together and said, "We're going to file a class action lawsuit right. against Paramount Pictures to stop this nasty practice of blind bidding." Right. And so Paramount was under tremendous pressure. Yeah. That they were going to be driven bankrupt. Yep. By the failure of Star Trek, that was when the lid came off the budget. Right. That was like. I don't, you know, Barry, yeah. Barry Donner said, I don't care what it costs. I don't care whether it's got black leader. I right. don't care if the story makes sense, but we must deliver on December 7th. Yeah. Which I think was Pearl Harbor Day. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that was when it opened up again. Right. The, the pressure of the budget kind of opened up. And the pressure on Bob Wise was relieved because he could kind of hand it off to me. Right. And I could see all the mistakes that they had made in principal photography. And I said, you just got to abandon a bunch of this stuff because I can't fix it. Now, you had been brought on as a consultant before the, the Great Purge. No. No, that's not accurate. Oh. T tell me what happened. Well, um, I was under contract to Paramount. Right. Doing Future General. Right. I was exploring the future of cinema. I was inventing high frame rates and simulation rides and, and the Magicam process right. of real-time... Um, compositing and video games. I was doing four major projects mm -hmm. and that was my mission. That's what I was being paid to do. Right. And the last thing I wanted to do was do Star Trek. Sure. And I was arrogant in the sense that, you know, I was a young guy who would come off 2001, a of space course. odyssey. Yeah. Which uh, I felt that the scale difference between space odyssey and Star Trek was light years apart. Right, in, and in, at that time in vision, in vision, and everything. So I, I thought I did, I'm not going to do Star Trek. Man, that's, right. that's so corny. That's a, right. you know, it's another thing. So I don't want to demean Star Trek, but I want to say that I was arrogant and I didn't want to do it. Sure. So Paramount thought they owned me, right? And were were going to press me into service, and I said no. Well, they were really furious at me for saying no. Sure. 
and they were ready to take my entire crew and all my cameras and everything that I'd been developing for ShowScan, because we had 65 millimeter cameras and optical printers, all this stuff, the infrastructure I'd built up, and give it to Bob Abel right. or somebody. Yeah. And um, I was just balking at the gate. So they brought in Richard Urisich, my partner, right. who was the consultant. I see. Okay, okay. so Richard was the glue, right. the lubricant that brought everybody into one room at one right. time. He's and the guy that told him, you're you not going to make it. He says, you're not going to make it. Yeah. you got to get dug and figure out how to do this. Right. And, uh, and then, you know, then the other thing that happened, even when we pulled that together and we had the big meeting with Barry Diller and all the lawyers and everybody, and we kind of came to a meeting of the minds that I would do Star Trek visual effects, which would going to kill me, in exchange for ownership of everything we developed at Future General. Right. So I would walk away with my freedom, I'd get out of my contract, I'd get paid, right. and I would... Be Everybody's to, happy. Everybody'd be happy. So, I, okay, this is worth going to the mat for. Right. And then we saw, holy moly, this has got so much. This has got as many shots in it as Close Encounters and Star Wars combined, right. and yes. we only have seven months right. until opening day. So uh, we immediately approached John Dykstra and Apogee. Right kind of take over half the work and split the work up. They were all working in VistaVision. We were right. working in 65. We had to kind of figure out how to do some transitional optical printing mm -hmm. to mate some shots up. If they shot part of it and we shot part of it, we had to be able to put it right. together. And we worked that out. And so we tag teamed. And uh, seems to me there aren't a lot of shots that required both of your elements in them. Not very many, but I was just looking at this. Mm -hmm. on my laptop mm -hmm. just to kind of remind myself where they were because they're here mm -hmm. and um, like there's a big transition between a lot of stuff that we did for the V'ger cloud right and then the V'ger cloud kind of parts and reveals V'ger right which was right. our stuff revealing revealing stuff. stuff yeah yeah so there's a transition from multiplane photography in 65 right. to physical photography of a miniature in VistaVision mm -hmm. and we put that together not a big deal but yeah, and it, but and it's something an you issue. Figure out. Yeah. You got to figure it out. So we did it. So in in divvying up the the chores on that, um, you you uh, I'm guessing that you used the storyboards that they'd already come up with for the project. No, not entirely. Ah. We we redesigned the whole thing. Mm. Uh, um, Bob Abel's company had a one take on the whole thing. Right. And we felt it was kind of unproducible. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had to go at it from a different point of view because they were expecting that these computer graphics things were going to work, which right. weren't. And we said, okay, now we're going to have to just go back, build miniatures. Do some tried and true stuff. And do tried and true stuff, smoke it up, right. do what we did for other movies, and make it work, you know. And uh, so simpler was better, right. kind of a philosophy. Right. And also a philosophy of... Uh, simplification in the sense that camera moves were con continuous speed and moving straight forward and you could almost put anything with anything right right uh, so there was kind of a visual simplification that we had to do in order to mm -hmm. just get it done on time we mm -hmm. couldn't we couldn't add frills and too many weird stuff so it but worked it's, I mean, it's that, things like that that you know restrictions help creativity I think they do a lot yeah and so I I actually don't resist the idea that a restriction of time and a restriction of budget makes you more ingenious, right. and it works fine. 
Right. As long as you're not going <laughs> to die in the process. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which I nearly did. I was in yeah. a hospital for two weeks after yeah. we got done. But, um, you know, with ulcers and all kinds of other stuff, because sure. I was working 24 hours a day almost. And I'm proud of what we did. There's some lame shots in the movie that I'm not proud of. Mm. But we got it done. You know, we achieved the goal, which was just to get it done. Sure. And get it done in a way that wasn't a miserable failure. Right. You know, or embarrassing to anybody. Right. We got it done. You didn't have to put Black Leader in the film. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, we fell a little bit short of that, so that was good. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you had, if you had been uh, the first and only uh, visual effects uh, company to be on that show, what would you have done differently? Well, that's a good question. I've never been asked that. Um, I would have I would have approached it my style, which mm -hmm. is miniatures, and atmosphere and motion control, and I probably would have stuck with my basic philosophy. But it would have unleashed more of what we did for the for the movie than mm -hmm. what we could do within the time we had. Right. And um, like there were things that I learned on two thousand and one that were actually quite simple and elegant about how to do weightlessness. Mm -hmm. Um. And they didn't learn any lessons when they shot the live action stuff. I wasn't there when they made all the mistakes. Right. And it's kind of a, a side story, you know, which is that in the visual effects contracting business, I would say it's, it, I think it's fair to say, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that about half the energy goes into fixing what went wrong in principal photography. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. the guys on the set who are just trying to bag the shots and get you them just done. they got to make on, the day. they yeah. got to make the day, and they don't care what, they leave behind right. that you've got to fix. Yeah. So fixing stuff is not anything I like to do. I like to get it right in principle photography. Sure. So that means I would say I got to be on the set. Yeah. I got to be fully integrated into the feature live action production right. so that I can add to it the magical stuff that we're going to add. Yeah. That has to be integrated. Right. It's a sad thing that today in the, in the way that the, the, in, the industry is structured, it's not that way anymore. Yeah. Um, they still make mistakes, and they still leave it to post, sure. and leave it to some poor low bidder to fix it. Yeah. And everybody's you know dying eighty hour uh, you know eighty hour weeks, and and going bankrupt in the process, yeah. if not. And uh, it's not a pleasant situation. I think it's it's dysfunctional. I think the whole the whole movie industry is not a pleasant situation anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's not run by people who are passionate filmmakers. Mm -hmm. It's run by business people and accountants. Yeah. And so I'm not going to be too disparaging about that because I want no, to stay no. employed. But Sure, but, <laughs> the, but the truth is that the, the people running the shows are different now. Yeah. They, they have different goals. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. But I just wish that they would let the people who can do the job to do the job. Right. Because things well, I, go a lot better. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with a... With, I, I'll, they won't... I'll be named right now, but sure. people who are candidate agents for me. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, Doug, why do you want to do all this technical stuff and direct? And I'm saying, I have to protect myself. Yeah. The reason I want to direct is that I want to make sure it's done right up front right. and that, the, that what's written will be doable by the effects. Never let a writer just write anything they want. Right. Write something that you can do. And uh, if I'm integrated from the start and I'm the, I'm the writer, director, producer, I can carry an idea all the way through right. to completion pretty efficiently. And you can make 
changes when you come up with a problem yeah. that are still in line with your creative desires. It's a, yeah, it's a certain skill set. Yeah. You know what you can do, and you know what will work. Right. And you've had experience with it, and you also know what will fail. Right. So don't do that. And it's very efficient. Yeah. And I don't purport to be the world's greatest director by any means, but I had this big epiphany when I was, when I was starting out, when I was doing silent running. And, you know, I, I, was, I was fortunate enough to be able to fall into that wonderful circumstance after Easy Rider and Universal wanted to take sure. this experiment and say, well, let's find some kind of independently minded young filmmakers, give them their head and let them do whatever they want right. and hope they don't crash. And so I had that experience on silent running. And so here I am, you know, I was an animator when I started out in 2001. I got through 2001, learned a lot because I'm on the set with this Kubrick right. uh, genius and... Um, Directing was not out of my range. Right. And I thought, well, yeah, I'll give it a try. I'd never been to film school. I didn't right. know a clue about sc screen direction or crossing the stage line. And, you know, but I figured it out on the set. On yeah. the set. Well, and I had working, I was working with really seasoned professional cinematographers and production designers and right. uh, uh, production managers. And they kind of taught me how right. to do that. But at the same time, I'm working with Bruce Dern, who is a really good and wonderful human being and a method actor. Yeah. And so he's saying, Doug, I just want to tell you how this works. This is how I get myself into this emotional state for this moment. You want this moment, and I'm going to do the dialogue that you're asking for, but in my mind and in my heart, I'm somewhere else with something that happened in my life that's meaningful to me that can make me cry or make my voice break or whatever. And so I'm going through this learning curve, and I say, well, you know, this acting thing, this drama thing, is actually the easiest part of making movies. Mm. It's actually pretty understandable. And so I, I came to the conclusion that a lot of this mystery about directors is a misunderstanding of the art form. Right. And I said, well, you know, this is not the hard part. Actors know what they're doing. A good writer knows what they're doing. Yeah. And a good director will say, oh, that's a good script. Let's write, let's shoot that. Right. A good actor will come in and say, I'll interpret that character for you. And it all goes yeah. perfectly. The hard part is all the, the visual effects and the environment and the, myst the, the, the mystery and the art form of creating illusions of, of yeah. things that no one's ever seen before, right. which is what's so challenging. And, and very few filmmakers can do it. And so I'm proud of the fact that I was lucky enough to work with Kubrick, who didn't know how to do what I did for him. Right. I did it for him, right. and I saved him yeah. from himself, because he was going into uncharted territory. And then I worked with Spielberg, with Stephen, on Close Encounters, and we were going into uncharted territory, and I did stuff that Stephen had no clue how to do. Right. And we saved Columbia Pictures from bankruptcy. Right. And then Blade Runner comes along, and... Ridley Scott's an incredible visionary filmmaker, but he didn't know how to do it either, right. so we did it for him. Because well, it hadn't been done before. Well, it's not just that. It's just that you're, you, you're working with a team of people who are going in a direction to try to do something that hasn't been seen before or done before. And they call me up, and I say, yes, I'll try it. I'm, I'll get on that little boat with you, and right. we'll go on this adventure together, yeah. and we'll make it happen because they trust me. Yeah. Because they also knew I was a director. And like in Star Trek, Robert Wise knew I was a director. Yeah. 
And so he said, well, okay, just take over this whole sequence. If you want to rewrite it, redesign it, rebuild it, reshoot it, fine. I'll get out of the way. This was very brave of Bob. I'd like to talk to give him a head. Take a little side journey into that sequence. That, that's the, uh, the memory wall sequence yeah. that, that they had uh, shot some of right. uh, with you know conventional techniques, not necessarily effective techniques of showing weightlessness and, and uh, the two characters coming through the built set right. of uh, the V'ger interior. Right. That, you know, we've seen some clips of that, we've seen some stills, and they look terrible. They were terrible. Yeah. And it was really hard for me to take the the role I had to take. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm coming in to save the day. So I know I have a certain, uh, I've been imbued with a certain amount of trust that I'm going to do that. Sure. And I have to go to Bob and say, the stuff you shot really is unsalvageable. Yeah. That's hard sure. to say to another artist. The painting of you course. just painted sucks. Of course. <laughs> And Especially so, to someone that you obviously respected so much. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, so that's, I, I would say that's the hardest kind of uh, personal relationship stuff. I would think so, yeah. Is to be honest about what looks okay and what does not. Yeah. So um, I, that was challenging, but I just had to, I'd been divorced just before that, and I knew what it's like to, you know, say the hard words. And, yeah. You know, so um, we did it, and yeah. Bob trusted me. And it was amazing for someone of his stature to simply say, okay, do your thing. Yeah. Call me when you're done kind of thing. Yeah. And, and he's working with uh, Jerry Goldsmith, who really saved the day over and over. Absolutely. <laughs> you Absolutely. know, he could take something and put some music in there that would make it all seem to make sense. Yeah. And like, you know, Bob had already shot most of the interiors, like for the V'ger sequence. Yes. You've got Sulu and Uhura and everybody looking at the viewport sure they don't know what the hell they're looking at and bob is saying just be amazed look right. amazed right. and we're gonna have some flashing lights or it's gonna go blue or whatever right. and uh nobody knowing what it's what's gonna happen right. and jerry goldsmith not knowing what's gonna happen right. and we're putting it in at the very last minute well you and you, you two guys were the pillars of that movie well you know holding it up well it, it's one of the other things that I learned in the process was that I, I started learning with Kubrick because he had Alex North do a score for 2001 right. that he entirely abandoned yeah. and replaced it with basically what you'd call stock music, sure. but visionary stock, visionary choice of stock music. Yes. And that was when, as a filmmaker, you completely reverse your process. You're not scoring music to a cut. You're right. cutting to right. scored score. music. It's a complete reversal of the creative process, right. which Kubrick could do effortlessly. He was a brilliant filmmaker. Yeah. And he knew a good piece of music when he heard it. So Alex, you know, he was caught in the position of having to score to some live action footage that already been shot that no one knew what was, right. and then my stuff that comes in at the last minute, and then having a scoring session at the last minute I mean, literally days before the movie yeah. opened, yeah. to put in the, the the music cues for the V'ger sequence, right. and did magical stuff that make that worked with that sequence. It's arguably his best score. I think it is. I think it's really, yeah. And I think partially due to his freedom from being bound to the visuals. 
because they hadn't existed yet. Right. And uh, I think uh, we've, we've talked about this in the podcast before, but his, his method of uh, scoring in sections for the, uh, for especially the, the V'ger flyovers and things like that, um, so that it could be edited, uh, either compressed or extended, depending on what came out for the visual effects, mm-hmm. was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And because uh, he knew how to do that, and he and he thought of that ahead of time, and but what you get is the equivalent of a, a symphony, right. you know, right? Because it's it's more freestyle, yeah. And and uh, and the visuals, you know, I hate to say that the visuals were cut to it because the visuals weren't really cut at that point for the theatrical. No. They were they were just slotted in. Yeah, just dropped in. Yeah. Which is unbelievably amazing to me. Well, it's amazing, but it's what's one of my little skill sets mm-hmm. is that I have an intuitive feeling for how long a shot should right. last. Right. For timing of shots, that's one of the things I do because I can see it in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, I know the beginning of the shot, I know the end of the shot, and I know, I can I tell the cameraman to get from here to there in 13.2 seconds. And that was the shot. And yeah, it worked. Are you a musician at all? No. No, but hmm. I have this thing that I do. I mean, it's yeah. part of my what I've learned to do yeah. over the years, and it's it has a lot to do with that timing issue of pre-visualization. And only just recently have I kind of come into a little more conscious recognition of that skill, right. which whatever it is. Yeah. Because I'm I'm working on a little movie about Nikola Tesla, mm. and I'm studying. I'm reading a lot of stuff about Nikola Tesla. Yeah. Well, he saw everything in his head before he built it or, or did anything. He could envision everything before he did any drawings or sketches or anything that would someone else would have to build. You know, like Mozart. A, yeah, but like a big magnetic thing or yeah. a coil or a, a Tesla or a Tesla coil or a, a motor or whatever. He saw it all in his head. And so I realized that, I okay, I'm not trying to say I'm like Nikola Tesla because Tesla was a major genius, but... There is a kind of art form to timing mm-hmm. that you kind of get a feeling for after you've made a few movies. It just starts coming naturally. Yeah, you know, your inner, f- inner clock. Yeah, your yeah. And so, like the sense. in in because we're talking talking about Star Trek that oh that sequence where um, they're arriving at the at the, the ship in the dry dock. Right. And no one knew quite what that was going to be, but I kind of had a feeling for how long each of those shots should be and how it would intercut with the shots already done um, in the little shuttle thing yeah. and reaction shots and stuff. And, and we put that together based on just really good professional guesses yeah. at how long each shot should be because we nailed it within just a few frames of what would work. That's one of the most beautiful sequences in a film I've ever seen. Well, thank you. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's what I do. You know, and it's uh, it's the the one of my philosophies that's, that's emerged as a filmmaker is, I love these periods in a movie where everybody stops talking. Yeah. I get so bored by melodrama and explanations, and one person talks to another person, and the obligatory over-the-shoulder shots and reverses and everything of talking. Right. And I say to myself, you know, if you want talking, watch TV. Yeah. But if you want an experience, exactly. Stop talking, and so Bob and be, said, and be in the and just be in the in scene. It. Just yeah. let it 
play out because it's a it's a visual symphony yeah. in a way. And so I knew that Jerry would be able to write some score to fit this sequence once it was done, which was the way it happened. Yeah. And I just had to do the shots, and they had to fit together in a linear sequence of you know, looking forward, looking back, looking sure. at a reverse, and, and exploring and revealing the ship as a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I felt that that was one of my responsibilities, was to raise the bar for Star Trek. Yeah. Because Star Trek... You know, was uh, in its primary function it was a television show. Sure. It was a, basically a, a, a science fiction soap opera. Right. And they never had money for visual effects or locations or big sets or anything. Yeah, so, I mean, they, you know, they were expensive for the time, but it yeah. was never enough. No, it's never enough. And wrong. so I wanted to just say, okay, let's make, let's take this really cool idea that uh, Star Trek was of the human drama taken to another level of, of really intelligent uh, concepts, right. which were always at work. You know, what, what is artificial intelligence or what is infinity or what is contact with an alien being or what is communication or what is love or, you know, all the kind of things that are in Star Trek and just bring it to a level of visual spectacle yeah. that people didn't ordinarily expect from Star Trek. And I think that was the thing that Paramount was so terrified of of transitioning from a television series to a, a feature film, right. I'm sure they were conscious of it because in retrospect I say, well, why did they hire Bob Wise? Well, Sound of Music and West Side Story and, you know, epic spectacles. Yeah. And uh, he was a little over his head technically. Sure. But he was really good with the actors yeah. and with the story. So, you know, worked and out. He, he worked got out. it shot. Yeah. Which was unbelievable considering the script problems that they had yeah yeah um and that's you know every stage of production on that film is an amazing you know uh, photo finish <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly um yeah you guys were as you mentioned down to the very last days mm -hmm. before delivery right and uh, you know bob used to tell him the story of how he went on the plane to the premiere on the 6th of December in Washington, D.C., with the canisters sitting on the... Plane, on the stage, uh, or uh, in the, the plane. On but, the plane yeah, next to him. Yeah, but the day before, all those canisters were laid out at on the MGM, stage yeah. at MGM with missing reels. Yeah, yeah. And that some made it to theaters without the last reel, and they started showing the film without the last reel. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's what I call a close call. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, which is which is why I I am so um, impressed is not the word. It's uh, amazed. I think is the word uh, that the movie got done at all. Yeah, it shouldn't have. It could have gone down easily at any point. Yeah, at any point. Yeah, and it's just it, it's a testament to. You know, you and and, uh, and Robert Wise and, and so many others who put their all into it. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about, we've done several episodes of this podcast uh, featuring the 40th anniversary of celebrating this movie. And we've talked about how seeing this film, I was 12 years old at the time, and I had been a fan of the original show for 
you know, since I was little. And seeing this film was a, a glimpse into seeing what Star Trek really was. You know, that the TV show was a version of what this actually existed. Mm, right. You know? Right. And that we, for the first time we got a glimpse of what actually happened in the future. Right. And that was miraculous because it, it took it on to a completely different level of relating to this entertainment. And the, the visual style of it was like nothing we had seen. I mean, right. it, it's, it's reminiscent of, you know, 2001 and a little bit of Star Wars and a little bit of, right. you know, this and that. But it was its own thing. And, you know, the, the, the self-lit uh, starship was so beautiful yeah. that it was, you know, at, at times you could, it would bring you to tears, especially during that sequence we were just talking about. Yeah. It's emotional on a, on a core level. You're not, you're not relating to what the characters are talking about. You're relating to the feeling of seeing this, right. you know, y your home, basically. Right. And to me, that's miraculous. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> I have a question for you. Yeah. Because you've, you've thought about this a lot more than I have, okay? <laughs> and, 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 you're, and you're probably much more deeply steeped in the world of Star Trek than I ever was. Agreed. Because I came from another dimension. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so you've got this story. That Gene dreams up this story. Right. He's probably working with other writers and everybody and saying, okay, this is an encounter between two species or whatever, uh, an encounter. But it's kind of like 2001 in the sense that V'ger maybe is a giant artificial intelligence, right. solid state slash organic yeah. thing. We don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's my question because it has made this really idiotic assumption that Voyager is going to lead it to its maker or something. Right. Right? And I think that's a really good representation of how AI can go wrong. Right. By not knowing better. Right. Does that make any sense to you? It does. It does. Because because it's it's machine thinking either you know knows black or white. Right. Know? So I'm just I see I was always wondering because I was always kind of oddly embarrassed by the by the ending and the story of V'ger, you know, because a couple of letters were missing from meteorite impacts or something, so it was spelling wrong, and it was misunderstood, and its purpose was misunderstood, and Carl Sagan's plaque of here we are and is what we like, right. and right. here's how you get to where we live, and, you know, in homes and on the earth and everything. Right. But it's, it's all actually just a big, huge misunderstanding. You know, it, it can be interpreted that way, but let's just assume that the machine planet um, was able to deduce from the Voyager 6's uh, tapes or whatever records it has yeah. the direction it came from and yeah. where, where its origin point was. Right. Well, yeah. Well, I'm going to assume that. So we can assume that. Um, we are assuming that the V'ger entity always called itself V'ger, and I don't think it did. Okay. I would, I would agree with that, too. I think that it first recognized its name when it came in contact with beings that could speak English and, you know, uh, digitized them and made them part of its knowledge base. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's fa fairly 
uh, late in the game that V'ger actually gets a self-awareness. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, the old joke that, you know, why didn't they just wipe off the dirt on the, on the sign, mm. is, is not taking the, the idea to its, you know, actual, quote, truth. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's, it's fascinating if you actually try and think of what, what V'ger wanted, you know. And I think the answer is that it didn't know what it wanted, but it, it, it knew that it should go back to where it came from to see if someone there did. Okay, I buy all that. Mm -hmm. And I guess the thing that I was thinking about during all of those, the production of actually making it happen, sure. was a feeling that there was never any possibility of enough verbal dialogue to explain what you just said. Right, right. And that you had to just do it visually. You right. had to let the audience, give the audience room to see it any way they wanted, which right. was very Kubrickian in a way. Indeed. You know, because the monolith, what's the monolith? It's the same conundrum. Right, right. Yeah, what's, what is the monolith and do you even want to answer that? Right, and yeah. it's more fun not to. Right. Right. Live, leave things up to your imagination. Right. And have a, a, a beautiful, symphonic, epic uh, glimpse of another right. dimension or intelligence or whatever, which I think is what we tried to do. I feel that, I feel that, yeah. and it's. Uh, I, I've always thought of of the motion picture as a, a two thousand one for people who aren't that serious about science fiction. Right. You know, <laughs> it's a, it's a little more spelled out yeah. than two thousand one. Yeah. But it's still boggling if you want to be boggled. Yeah. Yeah. And I I, I find that fun. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, you know, I'm I'm so glad that you were able to talk with me. Uh, oh, about this. I think it's really fun. We should do it, <laughs> we should do it more. I, w I would like yeah. to. Um, uh, you're certainly welcome to if you're in LA. Should we, we should have conversations like this before we shoot the movie. I, <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Well, yeah. Yeah. And I and I love that kind of thing. I, mean, I love interacting with people and saying, well, because I love other people's interpretations and ideas and thoughts, which are always more than I could conjure up. That, that's and, the beauty uh, of it. Yeah, that's the beauty of life anyway. So it's great. Thank you again. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I had interviewing Doug Trumbull. He was uh, a, a wonderful person to get to know and talk with. And I'm so glad that he wanted to be on the Trexperts podcast. I hope to have him back on the show when he's in town here because it, it always goes much better when we're in our lovely studio here. So thanks again, Douglas Trumbull. And thank you for joining us for Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts like The 430 Movie every Friday in which a group of writers and producers and me curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies. Also, this summer on The CW, don't forget to keep checking out the second season of Dean Devlin's fantasy series, The Outpost, and, of course, the new sci-fi action-adventure series from creator and executive producer Mark A. Altman, Pandora. Also, look for Best Movies Never Made every Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as the new Star Wars podcast, The Rebel and the Rogue, every Thursday night. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts please. 
and nothing else. <laughs> you can follow us at Inglorious Trek on Twitter or at Inglorious Trexperts on Instagram. Also, a very special thanks this week to Bill Ritter for making this sound better than it started. And everyone here at Electric Surge Network. So, until next Saturday, keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. Might as well engage. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.